On this edition of the Bill Kelly Show podcast, we are going to be talking about why Hamilton's municipal taxes are so high, like double what you would pay in Toronto for the same value house. Seems crazy. We'll try and explain, or at least we'll try and have it explained to us because it is a tough one to fathom. We're going to be chatting about recreational cannabis use especially among people who identify themselves as having poor mental health. It's double what other people would have, people who say they have good mental health. Is this a treatment that they are doing for themselves, or is this causing it? Because we've heard there are connections between mental health and cannabis, a causational thing. And we know church attendance in Canada is dropping. That is a known fact. No one's denying that one. But there are people who are now saying, wait a second, we will lose something more than just on a spiritual side if religion continues to fade, especially in the charity and social services area. Is that true? Is that fair? Well, we'll discuss that one. Coming up. Enjoy. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. If you have a $500,000 home in Toronto, well, um, I don't think such a thing exists anymore. But anyway, if you did, theoretically, if you had a $500,000 home in Toronto... You would be paying, according to Zucasa, which gathered all the statistics from around Ontario, you'd be paying $3,074 in property taxes this year. $3,074. Keep that number in mind. If you're in Oakville, you'd be paying $3,672. Burlington, $3,919. All in the 3000s with those places. But if you live in Hamilton, that same $500,000 price tag for that home, which if you were listening to Paul Tipple in the news just a moment ago, the average house price now in Hamilton is 590000 So we're talking about a house that's even below the average. But if you have that same theoretical $500,000 home in Hamilton, you would be paying $6,109, double, double Toronto, double the rate that you would pay in property taxes in the most expensive city in the world. What the heck is going on? Why is Hamilton paying such... What seems to be exorbitant property taxes. Let me bring in Ward 9 Councillor Brad Clark, who joins us this morning. Brad, thanks for doing this today. My pleasure, Scott. How are you? I am well. Uh, how is this possible? How, is, how has Hamilton managed to get to this point where our taxes seemingly are this high? I think it's really an indication of, of the economy. Because when I looked at the Zucasa report, it was interesting that the five top cities with the lowest tax rate had the highest market values and the top five cities with the highest taxes had the lowest market values. So when you're looking at a city of Toronto where the average market value is in excess of a million dollars now uh, in Toronto and they have two million homes, their tax rate is remarkably lower compared to other municipalities who have average market values and have lower populations. So it's a partially uh, um, an indication of, of just economics. So if your home is worth a million as opposed to 500000 we can give you a lower percentage because the same amount of money is eventually going to be brought in. Uh, that's exactly it. It's a lower levy because the market value is so much higher. But it, 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 it doesn't um, excuse the fact or dismiss the fact that in Hamilton we're still... On average, if we compare average property taxes in Ontario, we're 6% higher than the Ontario average. So we still have lots of work to do, um, but the study is, does create a bit of a false narrative because you're really comparing some of the wealthiest cities uh, in the province to some of the poorest cities in the province. 
There is a uh, a part of this that I, I think if you break it down, it, it starts to explain, again, maybe not uh, satisfactorily to people why, but it explains the basis of this. Uh, I think I'm correct, and you can correct me on this one, that roughly 90% of Hamilton's revenue, I think it's 88% is the exact amount, but that in that ballpark, uh, comes in from residential property taxes. That is correct. Uh, that that accurate That is a very accurate number. Hamilton and a number of the larger... Uh, I shouldn't say larger, a number of the, the urban centers in Ontario where they had high manufacturing bases, so you're talking Windsor, Sault Ste. Marie, Hamilton, those types of cities, they have seen um, a, a, a diminishing uh, a loss of industrial taxes because factories have closed up shop and went south of the border. Um, so as a result, a higher uh, residential component is making up the difference. So, you know, in, in Hamilton, we're at 88% of our taxes now come from the residential business, and we've done an awful lot to try to bring in a new industry, um, but it just doesn't happen overnight. So we are much more reliant then, essentially. We, we can't get by without having these taxes. It, that is the challenge. Um, to lower the taxes would mean a lowering of services, and when 88% of your taxes are coming from the residential base, the residents would feel the lowering of those services. So we have to uh, tackle it in a, a balanced manner and, and be a little bit more innovative. Uh, the city council in the last term, I wasn't on council, but they did a remarkable job by, by looking at the number of senior managers that they had within the system, and they were able to eliminate somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 senior management positions, which saved millions of dollars, uh, which is helping us to keep the taxes at, at a reasonable rate. Um, but that being said, we're still 6% higher than the provincial average. So. You bring up a really interesting point, and I think this is where a lot of people sort of look at this when they when they hear these numbers. Clearly, the fact that we have had manufacturing changes and we've lost some industries and the, the tax from that has gone away, clearly that has some impact on this. But how much of this and of the amount that Hamilton's paying and the large amount, the high amount, how much of this falls on council's shoulders for maybe not last council, if, if you say they did a terrific job of keeping it down, but previous ones before that for for not keeping it in control and for, for I don't even, I don't know if you want to use the word mismanaging or not controlling it or whatever. How much of this falls on council for letting this get here? Um, I would dare say that the vast majority of residents would say it's all falls on council. At the end of the day, council has to make the decision uh, as to what the budget is going to be. And the, the challenge that council is facing in Hamilton specifically is that um, the taxes, uh, while they're 6% higher than the provincial average, Hamilton also has another challenge in that the ability to, to pay higher taxes, the ability to pay um, uh, the taxes for the city itself is, is really stressed. And, and, and we're finding ourselves in a situation where we have a large senior component with fixed incomes and we have a, a, a fairly large portion of low-income people who can't mm. afford to pay those extra property taxes. So the council really does have to sharpen its pencil, as they say, to, to find the savings. Um, but this council, um, and I respect them for it, has been loath to cut services that really help um, the marginalized, the, the people in the community, the most vulnerable people in our community. So they're being very careful uh, when they're making decisions not to hurt that population within our city, 
and at the same time trying to balance it against um, the higher taxes with people who can't afford to pay those higher taxes. You said about four things in that answer that I want to get into here, so I'm going to work through them systematically because it was a great answer. Um, the first one about the seniors and people on a fixed income, this is, this is a challenging one because somebody may have lived in their same house for 50 years, and that house was a moderate moderate house once upon a time, but as the market has gone through the roof, the property value of that home has gone skyrocketing. They're on that fixed income, but now it's a five or $600,000 home. Therefore, their property taxes are now way, way, way more than they would have ever expected when they first bought that house. A hundred percent correct. And and that is one of the challenges and uh, where the city is, is uh, hoping to be able to respond to that is that we are modifying our residential zoning bylaw to make it permissible so that every home in the city of Hamilton can have a secondary unit, um, a granny flat, uh, uh, an in-law suite, as they say. And what that would enable uh, residents on fixed incomes to do is, in essence, rent out a portion of their home uh, to bring in some income to assist them because their their pensions are not going up with the cost of inflation. And so we have to, to acknowledge that we can do things and make things in our planning system available to our seniors population to, to bring in some additional income to their home. So that is happening and that should be coming back later this fall and introduced next year finally. And because, and, and again, our income here in Hamilton, I had to look this up this morning. I couldn't believe it when I saw it. I looked it up two or three places to make sure it was correct. Our average income in Hamilton is 14% below the provincial average, and yet we've got higher property taxes than most places. So we're now, I think the, the number that was reported last year, seven almost $74 million in arrears in property taxes that the city is having to chase around and try and find. People haven't or can't pay those. Yeah, and that number, um, it does fluctuate, uh, but because of the way the system is set up and we don't foreclose on people's, you know, take their, their property away um, in one year because they didn't pay their taxes. So it floats over a three-year period and it cycles through. And you, a lot of that $74 million has a has to do with commercial and industrial uh, taxpayers who are objecting to the taxes and going through appeals with MPAC. So we now have, we know it's a number that's been bandied around, Brad, for a long, long time. This, And I don't know if it changes a little bit, $3.2 billion infrastructure deficit, give or take a little bit. Stuff that needs to be fixed and maintained, a hard, hard stuff in the city, buildings and roads and bridges and things. And we have stuff that's being downloaded from the province and from the federal government to here, social services and things. It would appear on the face of looking at this, that our property taxes, no matter how much you guys sharpen your pencil, it's going to be very difficult for those to go down. They're only going to go up. Um, I would dare say that by the cost of inflation, at the very least, I would expect taxes to continue to rise over time. And I've said this many times in campaigns where people promise to cut taxes and, and it I've never seen it actually happen in a municipality, at least in the province of Ontario, where that has occurred. Um, inflation does take take effect, but we are incredibly challenged when the province or the federal government uh, eliminate one-time funding or download uh, program to the municipality uh, without notice, which does not give us any opportunity to actually plan the financing as to whether or not we want to continue those programs or how we're going to pay for those programs. And right now we're looking at a little bit over $12 million in, in, in potentially downloaded services from the current provincial government. 
One thing most politicians hate to do because they know there's going to be blowback every time, though, is to cut something. I mean, it, you, tell me if I'm wrong, but if there's a service or a, pro, a program or something that is in place and it's proposed that it's going to be cut back, your office, everyone's office is probably going to hear about it. And yet, is that not necessary now that, that at some point politicians and not just you guys, I mean, across the board, federal, provincial, municipal, everyone is going to have to start to say, you know, we just can't afford to do this. There are going to have to be some cuts and sorry, but we just can't keep raising the taxes. I, and I, I would, yeah, yes, I agree a hundred percent with your statement, Scott. Uh, I would suggest that I think the most prudent course of action for politicians from all levels of government is to start having discussions about priorities uh, with the, the residents, with the taxpayers, and, and and understand which programs are the priorities, the sacred cows that they don't want touched, and which programs um, are are they more willing to have uh, a reduction in services. And, which and which, which is have that discussion. Which makes sense, but every single person is going to have a different example. So you have a community meeting and you ask for that question. You're going to have 100 people at the meeting with 100 different positions that's the nature of politics 100%. And so you would have some groups who, um, you know, hypothetically, uh, the province of Ontario says municipalities have to have one long-term care facility, while Hamilton has two. So do we discuss losing one? As soon as I mention even that, that question, people get very agitated because they don't want to have the, the loss of one long-term care facility. So in the city of Hamilton, this council has... Um, religiously and historically said for the last 20 years, they're not going to look at the elimination of either long-term care facility. So they've made that decision based on the priorities of the broader community. Um, but we still have to continue to educate the public in terms of what the challenges are and what priorities we're, we're looking at. Uh, I know in my community, the, the state of repair of our roads and sidewalks is, is a real huge challenge for residents. And, and they're constantly bringing it up with me. It doesn't matter where I go, the, the roads are in a horrible condition. And so we are working on that and trying to expedite that. But if I take $10 million out of the budget to put into roads, someone else is short $10 million. Brad Clark, Ward 9 Councillor, appreciate the time as always. Thanks for doing this this morning. Thanks, Scott. Take care. Uh, there, there's your challenge. I'm guessing that most people listening this morning said, wait a second, we're paying double in property taxes what they're paying in Toronto. That's the most expensive city in Canada. Now, there are some places more expensive than us. Windsor is another 3000 over us on average. They're way up there. But if people listening are probably saying, wait a second, how are we paying double what Toronto is? And then we talked about this yesterday with Ian Lee when we were talking about the Fraser Institute report. As soon, what Brad just said, as soon as you then say, okay, let's cut this then. Okay, let's slash that back. Okay, we can't afford this anymore. Everybody loses their mind and starts screaming and yelling. At some point, one of two things is going to have to happen. We're either, all of us, we're either going to have to say, well, we're just going to have to pay higher and higher and higher and higher and higher taxes, or we're going to have to say, yeah, some stuff is going to have to be cut and we're going to have to live with it. It seems like there isn't a third option where we can say, let's pay for everything and not have any increase in costs and in taxes. That doesn't seem to make any sense anymore. And certainly when you look at Hamilton's municipal tax number, double Toronto, double Toronto. Hmm. I mean, it's, it seems like it's way too much. I just don't know how to make it better, how to make it lower, if everyone's just going to complain every time something has to be cut. 
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There was a study that was released last week by McMaster, and it was all about uh, it was a it was a poll really it was a it was a survey more than a, a study study because they looked at seventeen thousand roughly people in light of in the wake of cannabis since legislation in Canada. Some really interesting things pop out of here. Just going to point out a couple of them. One of them says that those age 15 to 25, according to this study survey, 15 to 25-year-olds are four times more likely to use it than those over 65 years old. Now, maybe we could have predicted that. Nonetheless, interesting. Those with an income over $80,000 were more likely to use than those with an income under $40,000. Predictable? Well, maybe. I mean, it costs money, right? So maybe that's what it's about. Not really sure. Uh, Both interesting things. But the line that jumped off the page, the, the, the thing from this thing, this study that really caught my attention was that those reporting that they had fair or poor mental health. So this is, I guess, self-diagnosing or someone's told them, but that those who feel they have fair or poor mental health were twice as likely to use as those who reported their mental health was good or excellent. Let me bring in... Jason Bussa, who's the senior author and associate professor in the Department of Anesthesia and associate director of the Michael G. DeGroote Center for Medicinal Cannabis Research at McMaster. Uh, Jason, thanks for doing this today. I really appreciate it. Morning, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Uh, you have the longest job title. You need like two business cards to fit it all on there. I just have one very large one. <laughs> A fold out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you look at these, these, this study, you look at these things that have popped out. Are most of the things that you found on here what you would have expected? Uh, we, we did expect to see greater enthusiasm amongst younger individuals for uh, looking at cannabis now that it's become more available. Um, we were a little bit surprised to see the higher rate amongst those with higher income, but I do think you're on to something when you acknowledge that this is, this is a product people have to pay for. If you have more disposable income, uh, that takes away that barrier. And we were also somewhat concerned about the point you raised where individuals self-reporting uh, worse mental health were more likely to uh, initiate or increase their use of cannabis. And we were concerned about that for a couple of reasons, uh, but one is there's at least anecdote out there uh, that cannabis may be therapeutic for treating things like uh, anxiety or sleep disorders, uh, possibly even depression, but the evidence behind that is very limited. We can't say at this point whether there is a therapeutic role, and if someone was moving towards cannabis in place of, say, their uh, conventional medication, uh, that, that might represent a, uh, a problematic trend. Uh, so we're not sure of the reasons behind it, but certainly we're uh, a little bit concerned uh, at some of the patterns that emerged. Well, I mean, this is, uh, I'm not a user. I've never actually tried cannabis, so that's, uh, so I'm, I'm naive Sally over here. I mean, so I'm not really speaking from any experience, but this is a drug clearly that makes you feel good, makes people feel good. So it makes sense that people who were struggling with their mental health might turn to this and might want to use this because it's presumably going to make them feel better. Yeah, you're, you're right about that. But at the same time, we know individuals with poor mental health are more likely to get into uh, uh, alcohol consumption to excess in some cases. So, I mean, no one would consider alcohol to be therapeutic. It can make you feel better. It may numb your pain, uh, but it's unlikely to help you progress. Uh, so, again, with cannabis, it is less clarity here. There's different formulations. There's over 100 different active cannabinoids. 
there may be a therapeutic role for some formulations of cannabis in some mental health conditions, uh, but just as we wouldn't advocate alcohol for treating anxiety or depression, uh, we wouldn't want to make the mistake of, you know, just because cannabis might be able to numb your pain, that it may in sense be also therapeutic. Well, here's especially why what I read and why this was of interest to me, because we've we've been since, especially since legalization, we've been reading lots and hearing lots. Uh, the Government of Canada website, I don't even know which one, I guess the health ministry or something, but they had a line on here that uh, says this, in some people, cannabis use increases the risk of developing mental illness, such as this, uh, such as psychosis or schizophrenia. And that's well documented, I think, by now that schizophrenic, schizophrenia can be brought on to some people by this. But the question, I guess, becomes, so is the, is the heightened use by people with mental health in your study, is this a cause of their mental health, the use of cannabis, or is it a self-described treatment? Well, it's another great, great question. Uh, because our, our, our study was cross-sectional, we only asked people at one point in time, we don't know the direction of that association. So you're right, there is some evidence out there to suggest that in some people, cannabis may bring on or accelerate uh, the onset of a mental illness. In other cases, people may use because of their mental illness. When you do a survey like ours, we, we can't tell what the direction is. So we don't uh, know if the mental illness was there before they started using it. Exactly. Now, we are studying a, a cohort of individuals in Hamilton, uh, over a 1,000 young adults, and following them forward over longer periods of time. And we're hoping that that study, as well as other studies we're aware of that are ongoing, will help answer that direction of association. Is it common... The And what I mean by is it common is uh, the onset of schizophrenia or the onset of mental health issues from cannabis. Do we believe that that's commonplace or is it very, very, very rare? Well, we know that the incidence of schizophrenia in the general population is about 1%. Uh, and we know that those that are heavy consumers of cannabis, if they have a predisposition in their family towards psychosis, then they appear to be more likely to uh, have an earlier onset of that condition. So even in the studies that are out there, we don't have so much evidence to show that cannabis use can actually cause uh, uh, psychosis, but it may cause it to come on earlier than it would have otherwise. So there's a lot of murkiness out there in the literature in terms of cause and effect, uh, but there does appear to be some strong associations that bear further investigation. It's funny you mention that because whenever I do a, a segment or do a topic on cannabis, I always worry that I'm going all reefer madness here and uh, sounding like the old guy on the lawn. <laughs> but it does strike me that every time I talk to you or someone else that is an expert in this field, there is still such an awful lot we don't know. And you're the experts and there's still stuff that's not known. It, it just seems like it's, it's, a, it's an open field of not really knowing a lot at this point. Well, and I also think that there's a lot of, um, there, there, there's a huge amount of market activity around cannabis right now. I mean, you're seeing licensed producers spring up left, right, and center. The uh, you know, share prices are going through the roof. There's a great deal of enthusiasm uh, for cannabis, both as a recreational and potentially as a therapeutic product. And with all this, this hype and activity, we have to be very careful to try not to let the, uh, you know, uh, the, the use of it outstrip where we have evidence to guide uh, what people should be doing and how they can use it safely. So what, what we're trying to do is to say, listen, there's a lot of controlled substances out there that people have access to, whether it's tobacco or alcohol or otherwise, but we, we need to make sure that use is happening safely if people are looking at this for recreational purposes. 
When it comes to therapeutic, we also need to be careful. Uh, again, there's a tremendous amount of hyperbole. Uh, there was a recent survey done in the United States of about 16,000 adults asking them what they thought about cannabis. Over 80% felt it that it had health benefits that were already established. Uh, about 1 in 10 felt it had no adverse effects. About 1 in 5 felt you couldn't become addicted to cannabis. Uh, all of this suggests that the enthusiasm for the public is outstripping what we know in terms of the evidence at this point. Should more research have been done before legalization, in your opinion? Uh, well, the, I think the answer uh, is certainly it would have been nice to do it. It's very difficult to do research on products that are illegal. Uh, and, and so that was one of the real challenges. Now, uh, Canada for, uh, you know, up until a year ago, they had had a practice of prohibition around recreational cannabis. Uh, therapeutic cannabis had been legal in, in a limited scope since about 2001. Uh, now that it has become fully legalized, we can start to do uh, a lot more of the research that we would have liked to have had. Um, and so that's maybe an advantage of the current situation. What does happen, though, as we study? Because I'm assuming that now that it is legal, as you say, the studies, the number of studies, the amount of study is going way up, as you say. So what happens if over the next number of years, now that it's on the front burner, we discover that, yeah, you know what, there are benefits, but there are also some things here that we didn't really realize, but you want to be very careful about and that causes some problems. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. No, you, you can't. And I mean, you know, we're, we're still in the midst of, of, a, of a serious issue with uh, opioids in Canada. And I mean, there's, there's potentially some parallels here. I hope we don't repeat history. But going back 25 years, uh, opioids were felt to be a potential solution for managing chronic pain. Prescribing went way up. There was a lot of enthusiasm. Um, and then later, the research has caught up with practice. We've discovered that the effectiveness is not as great as we hoped it would be that the side effects and consequences are greater than was believed at the time. And so now there is this effort in that case to try to put the genie back in the bottle. I hope that we sort of look back at experiences like that and say, let's not repeat that again with cannabis. Let's have a lot of enthusiasm. Let's have a lot of hypotheses. But let's let the evidence drive practice. That government website that I pointed out that was talking about the schizophrenia link also says this, uh, frequent cannabis use has also been associated with an increased risk of suicide, depression, and anxiety disorders. Is that something that is, a, that is a, a, an accepted view among the, com the medical and the science community, or is that someone at the Government of Canada just throwing that out there? Well, so a lot of the evidence, a lot of the studies that are out there will come from um, uh, what I would call you know, recreational strains of cannabis. These are cannabis that have high percentages of THC, which is that cannabinoid that gives you the high. Uh, there are studies out there looking at certain cannabinoids for treating uh, conditions like anxiety, but they focus much more on another cannabinoid called CBD, which doesn't give you that euphoria. Cannabis is a plant. There's over uh, 500 different chemical agents in there, over 100 different active cannabinoids. Uh, so there may be a therapeutic role for some elements. Some may also exacerbate the complaints that others would treat. And so it's, it's quite murky at this point. But there is at least some of that evidence showing that what people have been using recreationally uh, for cannabis uh, does seem to be associated with higher rates of some of those mental illnesses. As you very uh, wisely pointed out earlier, is it because people that have those conditions are more likely to use, or is it because use of cannabis is more likely to cause some of those conditions? 
and that's where we don't have as much information as we'd like. And and again, without trying to be the person who says ban everything, ban it, that's not what. Like there are people out there who I, I think you would probably say will never have any mental health issues as a result of this, and probably that's most people. If they use it, they use it. But the concerning part is that it sounds as though people who do have poor mental health who are turning to this for relief could possibly be exacerbating the circumstance. Yes, and and that's what we need to understand, and we need to understand. Uh, in what people might there be a therapeutic role if those people exist, what type of cannabis is likely to do that, uh, what type is likely to exacerbate problems. Uh, so again, all of this needs to be teased out, and at present we have uh, use that is escalating substantially every year in Canada. Uh, the last figures I saw with Health Canada is there's now over 350,000 Canadians that have been authorized to use cannabis uh, for therapeutic purposes. Uh, in terms of recreational use, even before legalization a year ago, about 15% of the Canadian public endorsed that they had used cannabis in the last three months. So we have a lot of use going on. Certainly not everybody is developing uh, uh, serious problems because of it, or we would, we would see a lot more problems happen. Uh, but we do need to know more about in whom is cannabis likely to cause a problem, does it have potential therapeutic applications, and try to get that evidence out there so that people can make better decisions about their use of this product. If I walk into a legal dispensary today or I order online some cannabis, the, the legal stuff now, do I get any information provided with it that would point out to someone who may be susceptible to mental health that, by the way, if you're self-medicating, this is you may want to check with your doctor first, or do you just get the drug? I, to my understanding, that, that type of warning, that type of detailed warning is currently not available. Now, what you will get is a standardized product that has been produced under, under, under certain regulations, so you actually know what you're getting. Uh, whereas on the illicit market, who knows what you are getting and what it might, what it might be contaminated with. Uh, so you are getting a product that, that should be more standardized and should be more consistent and by that, by that stretch safer. Uh, but we don't have that kind of detailed listing on the product that will warn certain people away from use uh, because of elevated risks. But I do think that's the kind of information that, uh, that that needs to be pursued. Whether anyone would pay attention to it or not is a different question. Yeah. I mean, you, know, you don't know. Uh, last thing before I let you go, we only have a minute or so left here. Uh, the other thing, or the, one of the other things that showed up on your survey that I, I found fascinating and entirely predictable, as you also said, is that it is younger people who are more enthusiastic. We have also heard, though, have we not, that from years now from studies that people, especially under about 21 years old, if you're a regular user, you can do permanent changes. You can cause permanent changes to your brain. Does it concern you that the enthusiasm is with people who seem to fall into the very age group that probably are the ones who absolutely shouldn't be using it? Yes, and, and again, we've, there is some contradictions in the literature. There are some studies, again, this is observational data, so they simply follow people that use, and again, are they more likely to use because they would be more likely to develop some of these issues, or could use cause these issues? Even in this area, there remains some, some discussion. Uh, but yes, it, it does concern me that there is the potential for causing neurodevelopmental issues in younger users, and certainly medical associations have raised this concern as well. The Canadian Medical Association uh, had proposed setting a legal age of 21 years uh, for use of cannabis and restrictions for those under the age of 25 for exactly the reasons that you've highlighted. Uh, at the same time, we know that in Canada currently, it is individuals younger than that that are the predominant users. 
So there's this sort of double-edged sword. You want to try to protect those that are most vulnerable, but you also want to acknowledge that if these groups are already using a lot of illicit cannabis, that it might be better to bring them into the illicit marketplace where what they are getting access to uh, has been standardized and has been produced under, under more regulated conditions. So I think that this issue is going to continue to play out and it's going to be an active area of research to try to understand should the legal age of use stay where it is, should it move up, or should we be doing a better job at trying to pick out individuals that are likely to experience much more harms uh, for use of this product. Jason Bussa from the Michael G. DeGroote Center for Medicinal Cannabis Research at McMaster. I appreciate the time today. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, We've known for some time in Canada that church attendance here has been dropping. It's not a secret. That's been well publicized, well documented. If you're an attender, you probably think this is a sad turn of events. If you are someone who doesn't bother with church, you're probably saying, well, who cares? It doesn't bother me. It doesn't affect me in any way. Well, here's the thing. The head of Oxfam in Great Britain, it's a charity. Uh, its tagline is, ending poverty begins with women's rights. It's a, it, I mean, it's a big charity, big thing over there. And the guy who runs it is a apparently a bit of a big deal in the world of fundraising and charities. Uh, he says around the world, religion plays a major role in making things better. And here's the kicker to this thing. He's an atheist, which seems sort of ironic. But is he right? Well, let me bring in David Haskell, who is a Wilfrid Laurier University religion and culture professor. David, thanks for doing this today. It's my pleasure. Uh, You know the common narrative that is out there often used. Religion causes division and wars and gets people killed more than anything else. So where's the upside that he's talking about? Uh, well, and even on that narrative, you have to say, well, which religion? Because you, you can't look at religion as a monolith. Uh, you have to say that, depending on the doctrine, religions can make people do different things. Uh, but the upside would be here in Canada, uh, it's a, still a predominantly Christian uh, religious culture. So what you see here in Canada uh, related to that is those people who are regular church attenders, for example, um, they will give twice as much to charity as opposed to average Canadians, actually three times as much. Um, they're about a thousand on average versus about three hundred by their other folks. Uh, in terms of volunteering, they do twice as much volunteering, and then when they volunteer, so twice as many are volunteering. When they volunteer, they do forty percent more hours than everybody else. So, the social good that, uh, in particular, churchgoers do is um, is monumental. So why do we never hear about this then? Because, the again, you go back and you have a discussion with people about religion, and oftentimes you'll get to the fact about its wars and its death and its people getting killed and its divisions and all the rest. We don't hear about this stuff. Uh, well, a part of it is uh, related to what constitutes news. Uh, some guys back in the 60s, Galtang and Rouge, they decided to calculate what makes something newsworthy. And when something is unusual... Uh, that makes it more newsworthy than the usual. So people would expect churchgoers to be good. So maybe it doesn't make the news because they're doing what's expected of them. But uh, there's another side to it, too. Uh, Those people in academia, for example, tend not to be religious. And when you aren't something, you don't give it a lot of thought. Our our biases blind us, that is to say. For example... um, a very famous sociologist, uh, Rodney Stark, wanted to see how often religion was me- mentioned in criminology textbooks. So he took the 16 
top criminology textbooks in the United States and found that only one or two even mentioned religion at all. Now, the reason that that's important is when you look at the studies related to religion and crime, it is the most significant factor in reducing crime. The fact that it wasn't in any criminology textbooks shows that academia has a blind spot when it comes to religion. And this happens in sociology of religion, uh, anthropology, uh, psychology. It, it tends not to be looked at, and, and the good stuff certainly uh, is ignored. So is this simply then, a, a, you talk about a blind spot, is it a blind spot, is it a lack of, a lack of interest, is it a, it, it, some, in some cases it seems almost more like hostility. Well, and you'd be right to say that it is hostility. Uh, we've got other good evidence just recently. Um, a sociological study was done by a guy named, uh, a sociologist at Crandall University, Sam Reimer, and he actually asked university professors uh, of different religious groups in, in the world, who do you feel most coolly toward or most hostily toward? And the only group that was seen negatively by over half of university professors, and this is out of all religious groups, happen to be uh, practicing conservative Christians. So when you've got this absolute hostility, I mean, and I mean recorded hostility, you're going to get negative things said, but probably not positive things said. So we do have evidence that uh, within the academy there is this prejudice against um, at least conservative Christians. And I would argue that right now there are probably many people listening who are saying, yeah, but they deserve it. There's hypocrisy and there's, you know, look at the churches, look at the TV evangelists. I mean, you can go back to Jim Baker and Jimmy Swaggart and those. I mean, there, there's more than enough evidence to suggest that those who talk the talk don't walk the walk. And so they deserve it. Yeah, and absolutely. Those people are reprehensible. And uh, and they they're they deserve to be called out. So when the media covers those things, that's absolutely a newsworthy story. But what we're seeing is a false equivalency. Um, we're, we're seeing some aberrant behavior shown to be what, what is supposed to be typical, and it's not typical. What we know in Canada, again, is that um, church-going people give three times the amount to charity, and they do twice as much volunteering. And not only that, when you look at other data, um, uh, sort of the preeminent sociologist of religion here in Canada was Reg Bibby, and he did a study a few years ago that looked at the values that people hold. And what he saw was that uh, religious Canadians, and again, this is predominantly Christians, because in, in Canada, the sample size really is weighted heavily toward Christians. He found that, for example, uh, when he asked them, what is very important in terms of your values? Well, those people who were the believers uh, were incredibly high on things like patience. Um, over 70% said patience was important, while only 39% of non-believers thought that that was important. On generosity, um, the, the theists, almost 70%, said generosity is very important, where only about 40% of the people who were non-believers. So what you see in this, and this is incredibly important, is that religion, and in particular Christianity, indoctrinates people, and this is a good indoctrination, into a mindset of uh, thinking of others. So the extent to which Canadians say goodbye to religion, we may find that we pay a significant social price. So let me go back to what I said off the top about the, the head of Oxfam. It's a guy by the name of Duncan Green. He's written some books. He's, he's uh, as I say, I, I've not, I don't know much about him, but I've read a little bit in the last few days, and he's described as a bit of a superstar in the charity and fundraising and looking after the world circles. Uh, 
he, and he's an atheist, and he actively, though, supports the involvement of religious groups in a broader way, says there's plenty of anecdotal evidence that when there's a well, disaster... It's not even anecdotal. It's not even anecdotal. I mean, the empirical evidence is just outstanding as to the good that uh, religious folks do for a society. Well, and, and uh, fair enough. And he, But what he's saying is there's plenty of anecdotal evidence that when there's a disaster or a war or a tragedy, especially internationally, people there are turning to various faith groups, Christians, Muslims, Jews, whoever, uh, for help. Here's a quote from him. He goes, religion is central to the lives of poor people in a way governments aid and NGOs are not. All the research shows that poor people trust religious organizations and turn to them in times of need. Is that the same here or is that just overseas in the developing world? Yeah, it is the same here, especially for the people who are more or, or, or who are less connected to society. So when you see refugees come to Canada, uh, over two thirds would say that their their most favorable interactions have been with church groups, because church groups still are pulling and punching beyond their weight in that. Uh, the disenfranchised um, and the marginalized also have the most interaction with places like the Salvation Army. Uh, people forget that the Salvation Army is an evangelical Christian group that, apart from government, uh, so the government gives aid, but outside of government, the Salvation Army is the largest provider of social assistance in Canada and in North America. And people don't realize that these guys are evangelical Christians. So, And they're reaching out specifically to the most disenfranchised. Uh, so so the, the fellow from Oxfam is absolutely right that uh, those people in, in greatest need do see this over um, abundance of help, and in a good way, from the religious community. And David, I'm going to go back, though, because I'm going to say I'm sure there are lots of people listening who are saying, wait a second, uh, this is great that he's saying this, but what about all these people who work with social justice in the cities and stuff? I, I see them doing a lot more than I see the churches doing. And, and I, I think there are many people will be saying that, that we see groups that are charity groups that have nothing to do with religion that are more active. Uh, and I would say, just show me the numbers. So you could say, uh, and the other thing to recall is that maybe an organization is working with people, but you say, well, how did they get founded? So the YMCA, for example, uh, it was the Young Men's Christian Association. It began by evangelical Christians. You might look at Habitat for Humanity. Well, that's an evangelical Christian organization, the largest provider of support for uh Children in Poverty is World Vision, again, an evangelical Christian organization. Goodwill was founded by an evangelical Christian. Uh, So if they're not even, let's say, let's concede that some of these organizations have become more secular, they they wouldn't have been founded without church-going people. Why do they, you've talked about the the giving and you've talked about the volunteering, why why do they do that? What's the Uh, impetus behind it? and, And again, this is where doctrine actually matters. I'm not trying to say rah, rah, rah for Christianity, because there are branches of Christianity that are incredibly intolerant, uh, as there are with any other faith. But in the main, Christianity teaches that to be a good person, it's not enough to do nothing, in terms of, like, don't do wrong. Uh, it actually, you have to do the right thing. The, the slogan from Jesus is, um, you have to do unto others. Uh, as you would have them do unto you. Now, in other world religions, there's this idea, don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. So essentially, you can sit on a chair and you're a righteous person. Within Christianity, the doctrine is, you must be an actively good person to be righteous. And that has made the world a difference. So you've asked, 
Why do they do it? It's because it's this actual command by their founder uh, that says you've got to do good things to be a good person, and they, they actually do it. So I think I know the answer to this already. I'm going to throw it out there anyway, though. If all of what you're saying is true, why would we not have governments that are tapped for cash, that don't have money, that, are, that don't have the ability to handle the programs that they can handle, that they need to handle to provide? If you've got groups, Christian, Muslim, Jewish, whatever, who are wanting to do this, who are reaching out or being available in the community, who are volunteering or giving more money, why are governments not in some way tapping into that to use that to help to cover some of the holes or some of the gaps in the programs? Well, first of all, there's... Um a certain amount of hostility, especially from left-leaning governments. We, we just saw the uh, Liberal government of Canada had um, a meeting at the G7. It was a recent meeting at the G7 where they gathered together NGOs to talk about social issues and how to prov- provide better social assistance to people in Canada. And they didn't invite a single religious organization. So to a certain extent, they believe that religious organizations are, are not really worthy of being at the table. And, and I would point out that we've seen prejudice, again, from the liberal government. They, for their summer jobs uh, grants, they insisted that people align with their ideology on abortion. And so that demonized people who were pro-life, who typically are more religious Canadians. When you have a government that is seeking to stigmatize people, it's not a surprise that they're, they're not reaching out to them in other cases. Well, we have seen one example of a leader who tried to do this at one point, and it didn't necessarily go very well. It was George W. Bush back in 2009. He tried to bring in uh, churches to expand their faith-based, faith-based initiatives and give some government money to them because they were already doing social services. Uh, got a lot of blowback. And, and I think, as I say, when I think I know the answer already, there is, in our society, north and south of the border, there is a a great um, a fear, a great, uh, host- not hostility, a great discomfort about that melding of church and state or a perceived melding of church and state. Uh, yeah, and I think that we do want to keep a, a strong separation between church and state. Um, no good ever comes from government getting in bed with religion or religion getting in bed with government. And, and as a sociologist, I can tell you that it just it makes everything worse. Uh, it actually leads to a decline in religion when government begins to give outright support, uh, where, where, be, where something becomes an official religion, that only bad things happen there. It's, it's really good. The best thing a government can do for religion in general is to take a hands-off approach and not stigmatize them, but also don't, don't try to make one religion the dominant religion. Let it be a marketplace of ideas, and then the best ideas are going to rise to the top. And we do have, and you mentioned this, we only have a minute or so left here, you did mention a moment ago that uh, some of these organizations did start as religious organizations, and and the first one that comes to mind, and you may have mentioned it, and I just missed hearing it, but the one that comes to mind most often is we have Catholic hospitals all over the place that started as Catholic hospitals. Now, we now fund those. We have government money that now funds those Catholic hospitals. So how have we been able to parse that where we say, okay, I don't want to give government money to religious organizations because we have to keep a separation of church and state. But if we have a Catholic hospital, well, we're okay giving government money to that. That It, it, it seems like we've made a, an exception there. I'm just not sure why. Well, this always goes back to the uh, Constitution or the BNA Act of 1867, where there were certain rights given to Catholics um, 
simply because they were a dominant force in our society. We see it also with their private schools and, and how there's guaranteed funding. So that's a carryover, I would believe, from, from those early days. Also, the Catholic hospitals were probably doing a good job, and the government said, well, we don't want to stop them from doing a good job. Instead, we'll fund them and allow them to just treat everybody. So there would be some just the reality of the situation to, to not try to recreate the wheel probably pay, played a part in that too. Just before I let you go, we, we mentioned about the developing world. When you see the example that, and again, when Oxfam is saying, look, look over there, when you see in international, other countries around the world, you see these religious groups that are being helpful. Do people here simply look at that and say, yeah, but that's the developing, that's the developing world. Those are, that's not us. Those are people who don't have as, I mean, whatever. There, is it an excuse or should we use it as an example? Should we be looking there and saying, no, no, rather than saying, well, they just are not the West. They're far behind us. Should we be doing something and saying, well, wait a second, if it's working there, maybe we can translate something to here? Yeah, well, I mean, we don't even have to look into the developing world. We can say that uh, we've got really good evidence from social science that shows those people who are are religious, in particular, uh, when you look at uh, Christians in this, because that's what most of it is looking at in, in the West, they do more for charity. They do more for volunteering. They also have the lowest levels of depression, neurosis, psychosis. Uh, they also have the highest levels of happiness. So from a mental health point of view, the more religion you have in a society, the better off your society is. So now you actually have lower health care costs because of that. Um, if you wanted to look at things like human rights, uh, there have been fine scholars like uh, Larry Seidentop from Oxford. He traces the foundation of human rights to the Judeo-Christian ethic and, and says, essentially, if you didn't have Jesus, you wouldn't have human rights in the West. You've got uh, scholars like um, Harold Berman from Harvard who traces our law system and its, its desire to have equality before the law. He says that all begins with the Christian ethic. So I think that we just need to embrace what was and, and realize what we could lose by not at least acknowledging the goodness that has come from from faith. David Haskell from Wilfrid Laurier University, uh, professor of religion and culture. Thanks so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thanks for uh, the call. So, what uh, do you agree? I mean, the, look, the, the the numbers that he cited, and I I had found these earlier today. The numbers he cited about charitable donations and volunteer hours; those are stats can numbers. So th- that is not a just so you understand that that was not him just picking some number that a church gave out or something. Those are stats can numbers about donations and time and giving and everything else. Uh, there's clearly something to that. But do you agree with the other concept about it? That if religion was to fade away entirely, if we were to let the church attendance continue to drop and whatever else that we would be losing something, there are people who will argue vigorously, no, let it go, fine, don't worry about it, couldn't care less. We will pick up the slack when it goes. Don't worry about it. And yet it seems, anyway, based on historical precedent, based on the past, it would seem that that may not exactly be the case, which does raise the question for me. The the question that comes out of this whole thing for me is when he talked about the hostility. Do we need to rethink that a little bit? Be hostile towards the people who deserve it. But that doesn't necessarily mean everybody. The Bill Kelly Show. Weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. Thanks for listening to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Scott Radley. We'll have another one for you tomorrow. 
Enjoy. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.